I can pinpoint exactly when I began to be concerned about the failure of evangelical culture to uphold the dignity of refugees and immigrants as image bearers. It was in June of 2011 when I was in attendance at a denominational meeting in Phoenix, Arizona, and a resolution was put before those in attendance that called for, and this is an exact quote, churches to proclaim Christ and minister in His Spirit to everyone regardless of their immigration status. It said any form of nativism, mistreatment, or exploitation is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The measure went on to call for the government to make a priority of border security and of holding businesses accountable in their hiring practices. But it also requested public officials to, and this is a quote, implement with borders secured a just and compassionate path to legal status with appropriate restitutionary measures for those undocumented immigrants already living in our country. It was the discussion about that last bit, the part about providing a pathway to legal status that set off alarm bells for me. Look, I get, I get that working toward legal status for folks already here is something about which people of good conscience can disagree and debate. But how that point was debated at this meeting is what set off alarm bells for me. Several pastors who served churches along the southern border stood up to speak against that portion of the resolution. And I totally get that they are dealing with this issue on a completely different level than I am as the pastor of a church in the Midwest. But I couldn't believe how many of them talked about these people as things as issues in barely hidden racist characterizations. I was saddened and I was infuriated. That experience, along with our government's treatment about that same time of a member of the Blue Valley family that was discovered to be here illegally, treatment that I and many of those present here today witnessed firsthand led me to get very active for years in advocating for reform to the system. I even went to Washington with a delegation from Kansas to lobby our elected leaders for secure borders, yes, but also compassionate reform to our current laws. And I walked away from all of that political engagement when I realized that both sides of the aisle weren't going to do anything uh, the American political system uh, continues on the back of unresolved issues. And there are certain issues in political life that fire up the base if they remain unsolved. So again, with this issue in the political process, uh, the refugee and the immigrant are things. I also switched gears when former U.S. Representative Kevin Yoder, who understood the issue better than anyone I talked to in government, told our little group, you'll never build a wall high enough, and this was years before the current talk of walls, you'll never build a wall high enough to keep people out when there's that much economic disparity. He said, we're not talking about secure borders between us and Canada, are we, because of the economic similarities. So not only do our elected leaders, I don't think, really want this issue resolved, it's all but impossible to fix. 
And that's as political as I'm going to get today, so everybody can take a deep breath. All of this has been to say that as a U.S. citizen, I believe that I'm always going to be frustrated on this issue. But as a kingdom citizen, which is my true and better citizenship, my call from Jesus, the image of the invisible God, to treat with dignity those in our country seeking refuge and opportunity either legally or illegally remains unchanged. And that's what we're going to talk about today by asking our three questions. What did Jesus teach? What did Jesus do? And what does Jesus command? So, what did Jesus teach? And to address that, I'm going to make a statement that may not seem germane to this topic at all, but I want you to hang with me for a bit, and you'll see the connection, I think. And here's the statement. Jesus taught the righteousness of God's kingdom. Now, probably the the greatest discipleship deficiency in most of our lives is our failure to understand the centrality of the kingdom of God to the message of Jesus. My guess is is that if, if we were asked, most of us here today would struggle to explain what the kingdom of God is or we would uh, uh, perhaps just give it uh, a, a vague, uh, hippy-dippy description because we don't really know what we're talking about. But for Jesus, the kingdom of God was a real thing. The rule of God, of which he himself was the embodiment. This is what he meant in Luke 17, 21, when he told his disciples, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He was pointing to himself. He was the very image of God, and as such, he was the embodiment of a person living under God's rule. And the number one word that he used to characterize the rule of God was the word righteousness. In fact, he used righteousness as a virtual synonym for kingdom, famously saying, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is saying our first priority is to live under God's rule, and to live under God's rule is to live righteously. Kingdom and righteousness are virtual synonyms for one another. And Jesus taught and modeled what righteousness in the kingdom looked like, what living according to the rule of God was all about. So how did he understand that? How did he understand righteousness? Well, he explains it most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. There, in my opinion, he simply states that the righteousness of the kingdom is an internalization of God's reign that transforms us from the inside out. Kingdom citizens don't just abstain from murder. The anger that drives it is rooted out. They don't just abstain from adultery. The lust that drives it is rooted out. They don't just perform outward acts of worship. The heart that drives it is cultivated. And here's where we begin to get to our subject. They don't just endure mistreatment. They are driven to put the needs of others always above their own. I want you to listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 
38 through 41. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, and then pay a special attention to this. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, did you get all that he was talking about there? Jesus is saying, sacrifice for the well-being of people that you would otherwise at minimum be suspicious of and maybe even despise those who were evil, like those who would insult you or slap you, and those who would try to ruin you financially, like those who would sue you, and government officials who would conscript you for their service, like those who would force you to carry their armor for them, and those in society that we despise and otherwise ignore, people who beg. Are their motives pure? Not our concern. Are they going to take advantage? Jesus seems to be saying that's not our concern. Righteousness puts the well-being of the other person first, to which probably everyone in this room is now saying that's unworkable. And it would otherwise, ultimately, work against the actual well-being of the person who's in need themselves. And you know what? In a sinful world, you're absolutely right. But rather than dismiss what Jesus is saying about the treatment of people in need as an impossible idea so that we can continue to ignore them, which is exactly what most of us do, we're being called by Jesus here to figure out how this works in our lives now, not in the sweet by and by, as citizens of the kingdom of God. So how did this treatment of those in need called for by Jesus work its way out in our lives towards our subject today, the immigrant and the refugee as image bearers? Well, for that, we can look to the same Old Testament that informed what Jesus is saying. Before Jesus and the church he established, the persons who were to embody the kingdom on earth were the Jewish people and their kings, both of whom usually did a terrible job of modeling it. But it wasn't for lack of instruction from God on how to live under his rule, over and over again, we see the people and their kings being given instruction on how to live and to reign in righteousness. And over and over again, you see the treatment of three classes of people as the key metric for measuring righteous living, treatment of the poor, treatment of the fatherless and the husbandless, and treatment of the sojourner. Citizens of the kingdom were to ensure that those classes of people were treated compassionately and fairly as a barometer of living righteously. In other words, if treatment of these three classes of people is on par with the standards of God, you're probably doing a really good job across the rest of society. Now, the Hebrew word for sojourner simply references those living in our midst who don't enjoy the same rights 
as a citizen or who don't enjoy the same benefit of doubt given to a citizen. They were known in ancient times to the populace, frequently in need, and their presence in ancient Israel was driven by the same issues that drive sojourners to be in our midst today, being displaced by war or some other crisis and seeking better economic opportunities. They were refugees and immigrants. Now, obviously, the Old Testament doesn't give them a blank check. Sojourners weren't allowed to bring harm to the country or to the citizenship, but barring that, God demanded their fair and just treatment. In ancient times, borders were more fluid, and the modern issue of legally here versus illegally here wasn't on the radar. So, the application of the Old Testament term sojourner to the situation of modern illegal immigration is a legitimate point of debate. I want you to make certain that you heard what I said so that you don't go out and have a conversation about something I didn't say. I said that a debate about whether the word sojourner can be directly applied to the situation of illegal Immigration is a point of legitimate biblical debate. Did you hear me say that? Okay. But here's what isn't up for debate. Concluding that the term sojourner doesn't apply to the illegal immigrant doesn't give us permission as kingdom citizens to disparage them, to ridicule them, to ignore their need, or to treat them unfairly. So treatment of the sojourner, refugee and immigrant, regardless of status, is a key metric still of measuring the righteousness of the kingdom as taught by Jesus, as the exemplar of the image of God, of what it means to be human. Jesus taught that this treatment isn't limited by what is easy and by what is comfortable for us. Image bearers treat others, including refugees and immigrants, as image bearers. And it certainly isn't a stretch to see that this treatment is limited by status do you really see Jesus saying, and if an immigrant seeking asylum or a better life for their family asks you for food or clothing or shelter, ask first whether they have a green card. You see him saying that? Of course not. Image bearers treat them as image bearers. And that is what grieved me over 12 years ago when I heard Jesus followers talk about the immigration crisis and the situation on the southern border at a denominational meeting. It was clear that they had, many of them, been discipled by their news channel and by their favorite politicians and not by Jesus in talking about sojourners. Again, listen to me. I want you to make sure you hear what I say so that you don't have a good conversation about something I didn't. The crisis is a complex problem, and the solutions are probably even more complex than the complex problem. But how followers of Jesus are to treat them and talk about them isn't 
complex. The compassionate treatment of those in need in our midst, regardless of status, is part of what righteous living demands. I believe with all of my heart that is the only natural conclusion one can reach from what Jesus taught. So what did Jesus do? And this is what is frequently overlooked. Jesus chose the experience of a sojourner. Chose it. Jesus was born into a family that fled political violence and sought refuge for a time in another country. Matthew 2 tells us that when Herod went on a murderous rampage to kill male children under two living in Bethlehem in an effort to try to kill the Messiah, the threat to his rule, Joseph roused his family in the middle of the night and fled to Egypt. Upon their return, they settled in a region of Israel outside the political reach of those who had sought to harm their little family. Jesus experienced life for a time as a refugee which means that as God, he chose that experience for himself in his incarnation. That identification alone should give us pause when we talk about refugees. But there's an even deeper identification to consider here. In Matthew 25, Jesus is looking ahead to Judgment Day and the separation of those who would enter into his presence from those who would be banished from it. And one of the determining factors is how those present acted when encountering a stranger. We've looked at this before in this series, but listen to the words of Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. Now jump down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. In those encounters, the people at judgment are being told by Jesus that they were meeting Jesus. And one of the ways they met Jesus was as a stranger. The New Testament word for the Old Testament word sojourner. Which means that in saying Jesus chose the experience of a sojourner, I'm not just saying that Jesus was a refugee as a small boy. I'm saying that Jesus continues in our world to choose the experience of the sojourner as an opportunity to identify who really belongs to him and who just claims to belong to him. So maybe we should just pump the brakes before we cheer elected officials sending plane loads of illegal immigrants to their political rivals. Maybe we shouldn't shrug our shoulders when children are separated at the borders from their families. But these are, are just changes of mindset and attitude toward national problems that are well beyond the personal scope we have of impact. So in our community, 
as individuals. Maybe we shouldn't get angry when someone new to our country struggles with our language. And maybe we should take time to really understand why the folks who are new to our country came here in the first place. Because Jesus chose the experience of the sojourner, and there is a sense in which every encounter with one is still an encounter with him. And so in closing, what did Jesus command? And it's simple. Jesus commanded us to go. (laughs) We're all familiar with what is known as the Great Commission, the marching orders of the church, which says in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, closing out the book of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, go to all the nations and make disciples. But here's the deal. We now no longer have to go in order to go. God in his sovereignty is sending the nations to us. This is what is lost when Jesus' followers think of themselves primarily as earthly citizens with partisan or ideological allegiances and not as kingdom citizens. When we think of ourselves primarily in those earthly ways, our focus can be primarily on how to preserve what we have, and those are huge issues. Again, hear what I'm saying. I want you to know when you go out there and have conversations about that that you're having a conversation about what I actually said. Having conversations about the crisis and the safety of all of it is legitimately worth our time. But when we think of ourselves primarily as kingdom citizens, we acknowledge the complexities And yes, even dangers of the immigration crisis, but we rejoice at the opportunity God is giving us to make his name known to people from countries that our missionaries aren't currently permitted to go to. God is sending us Afghans and Somalians and Burmese and a host of others who can now freely hear the gospel from our lips. And when all we do is spend time making keep out signs, we never see the possibility of worldwide revival that could start right here in America with the church simply viewing those who are coming as bearers of the image of God and opportunities for the saving knowledge of Jesus. More so than any other, this topic may be the most difficult for us to feel like we can do anything about. The movement of people across borders is a massive global problem, and because it is, we frequently think we are helpless to do anything. So what are we to do with today's message? And honestly, here's my Here's my biggest hope. 
My hope is that we would simply change our attitude and our tone on this subject. Perhaps more so than any other group, folks like us tend to view refugees and immigrants as inconveniences or threats first and not as image bearers. I want us to repent of the disparaging ways we've thought about them and talked about them. I want us to to demand better of ourselves as a church when conversation steers itself towards this crisis. I want us to lovingly and privately call one another out on social media posts that mock the strangers in our midst. And I want us to pray about how and whether God might want us to get involved on a, on a bigger scale beyond just our personal scope of impact. Because as someone with a lot of skin in the game trying to change policy, I have zero confidence that anybody has a real interest in actually doing anything. So the issue is always going to be with citizens of Christ's kingdom. We're the only ones, I believe, who can actually do something profitable and amazing with this issue that the rest of our world feels hostage to, quite frankly. The issue is always going to be with us. So let's be the church with the gospel to the people that God is sending our way. Join me in prayer.